Uh, we covered half of this chapter last Wednesday, so we'll finish up uh, the 14th chapter tonight. Uh, as Randy mentioned, next week is a prayer and praise service. And then I'm going to do a, uh, a mini-series on finances, faith, and freedom uh, in the month of February. So uh, if that is something that you say, hey, I think that uh, uh, that not only would be a benefit to me, but there's other people that I know that uh, could really use a biblical perspective on finances, uh, invite them out Wednesday nights. Uh, now that we start at 6.30, uh, I know a lot of you have been telling me that it's really been uh, I know that we all like coming, but it is a little better to get out a little bit earlier, uh, on, especially on school nights, and you got work the next day, and uh, I think it's been a good change. So invite people out. Uh, certainly finances is a big problem with so many, uh, not only in the body of Christ, but maybe a way to get unsaved people that wouldn't normally come uh, to come out as well. Ezekiel 14, starting with verse 12, we'll be reading uh, 11 verses that finish out the chapter here. Starting with verse 12, the word of the Lord came again to me saying, son of man, when a man sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pa pass through the land, and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass by because of the beast, even though one of these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered, and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land and say, sword, go through the land and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury out on it and blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. No, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you, and, and you will be comforted concerning the disaster I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. Father, we ask again for your spirit to speak through your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you prepared our hearts and our minds and that we would uh, just, as we leave here tonight, treasure your word even more. But Lord, more than that, that you would just conform us more to the image of your son, Jesus, that we'd be your lights and witnesses, and even in the days in which we live and in the country in which we live and in this world, in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Israel... If you remember us last week, we looked at Israel's idols of the heart, and it didn't matter if the idolatry was evident to everybody, and some idolatry is, is clearly going to be evident. You're bowing down to a specific graven image or something like that. That's evident to anybody, but some idolatry isn't quite as evident, but God always looks at the heart, doesn't he? 
He knows where we really are. He knows what we really worship. He knows what we really value or give worth to, what we really bow down in our lives to. And Israel uh, was certainly at that time with much pent-up rebellion to the Lord in the form of idolatry, continually rejecting the Lord and choosing instead the things of the flesh, choosing the things that were against the law, those things that God had forbidden, and also not embracing and not choosing those things uh, that God had given to Israel as covenants to them. Israel's rebellion, it was a collective effort. It wasn't just one person or uh, a small number of people, but the rebellion was collective. Their condition was the result of generation after generation. Does that sound familiar? Generation after generation, rejecting the law of God, rejecting the word of God, and they rejected the repentance that was preached by the prophets of God. So the word of God, the law of God, the prophets sent with the word, sent with the law, sent with a message of repentance, and they would continually either reject it completely, receive a little bit of it, but not the completeness of it, or just put it off to another day. Just put it off. That, that sounds reasonable, but we'll just put it off. And they would continue to serve themselves, continue to live the way they wanted to, continue to mix religion and hypocrisy and the flesh and idolatry, and continue to go to the temple, but also at the same time have idolatrous hearts, continue to say that they believed in God, but also still have many issues of sin. Now, long before Jeremiah was born, remember that Jeremiah had come before Ezekiel and Daniel. Jeremiah had come before both Ezekiel and Daniel, and he had been uh, preaching repentance. But even before Jeremiah, who was the senior of uh, Daniel and Ezekiel, both living in Babylon, if you've been with us in our study, both of them were in Babylon by this time. And, you know, he was a good... Uh, 25 to 30 years ahead of them in preaching repentance. And Jeremiah, as you know, if you've been with the study, at this point would still be in Jerusalem. He's still alive at this point. He's back in Jerusalem. But even long before he was born and was preaching in Jerusalem, Isaiah, you know, 130, 150 years earlier even than that, uh, he had been preaching on the judgment that was coming on the destruction that was coming to Jerusalem. And this is one of the problems when people have heard judgment preached for a long, long time, isn't it? What's the natural response? Sure, it's coming, just not in my lifetime. That's what they think. Yeah, I know Isaiah used to preach it, but he's long gone. I know Jeremiah said it was coming, but he's still with us. I still have a hard time believing that, uh, that some of Israel didn't see the eminence of all this when, frankly, they had seen some of their own neighbors carried off into captivity already, such as Ezekiel, such as Daniel. But again, Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed as a city yet, and they, should, they could not see that even the obvious signs of the walls crumbling, I'm speaking metaphorically, the obvious signs were there and yet they were ignoring them. Back when Isaiah was preaching and sharing, of course, he was, uh, he was martyred for the faith, 
uh, he actually, his name meant salvation is of the Lord. And every time God had sent the prophets, uh, he had always come that the, the people would receive salvation. But to receive salvation, you have to make that choice, don't you? In the same way that we, that we offer when we present the gospel to someone, we can't make them come to Christ. We simply say, this is the gospel. It'll change your life. God will forgive you of everything you've ever done. He'll actually stop what would be judgment coming upon you, at least, at least with death, and he'll completely redeem you and turn you around, cleanse you, give you a new heart, and someday you'll live forever with him in heaven. But you can't, you can't have salvation unless you receive it, and you have to receive it on the terms of the Lord, don't you? It has to be what God prescribes when he sends the prophets. If he said, the Lord says, thus saith the Lord, these things must change. These things must be rooted out of your life. You can either receive that message or you can refuse it. And up until this point, sadly, you know, the northern kingdom of Israel had already gone into captivity um, at this point about 125 years earlier had been taken away by Assyria. And so Judah and Jerusalem, still surviving to this point, still believing that uh, instead of them being uh, judged and destroyed, that God was instead going to bring back those that were in Babylon and everybody would kind of, uh, things would return to normal and they would just be happy, happily ever after. But that's not the case. Judgment is coming. And Israel's not ready for it. And the Lord says, the things that I'm going to bring upon it are disastrous. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word tonight, Persistent Refusal. Persistent Refusal. And we'll look at three things from the text tonight. The cause, the calamities, and lastly, the comfort. The cause, the calamities, and the comfort. The cause, um, some of you are probably familiar with Matthew Henry, he's considered probably the most well-known of Bible commentaries. Uh, he was alive in the late 1600s, early 1700s. But he wrote way back when uh, regarding this text, this specific uh, text that we're reading from tonight. He said the scope of these verses is to show, well, he had a long list, but I'm only giving you a couple, uh, number one, that the national sins bring national judgments. Did you hear that? National sins bring national judgments. When virtue is ruined and laid waste, everything else will soon be uh, ruined and laid waste too. Number two, that God is a variety of sore, that's a word we don't use anymore, but uh, not in this context, when God has a variety of, we could say, disastrous or difficult judgments wherewith to punish sinful nations, and he has them all at command and inflicts them in phases. So God has judgments, many judgments at his disposal that he can inflict on nations, and he can, and he can uh, dispatch them in phases. So number one, National sins bring national judgments. 
God has a variety of judgments. Number three, when God's professing people revolt from him and rebel against him, they may justly expect a complication of judgments to fall upon them. When God's professing people revolt from him. Now, our nation, we have on our dollar bills and all of our coins, you've heard me mention, in God we trust. When your testimony to the world is that you trust in God, but you don't trust in God, you're held to a higher standard. It's a standard to be put wisely. It's a, good, it's a good standard to have because we should trust in God. But if it, doesn't, if it doesn't really hold true, then we have a serious problem. But number three was when God's professing people revolt from him and rebel against him, they can justly expect a complication of judgments to fall upon them. Number four, that there may be and commonly are some few very good men, even in those places, that by sin are ripened for ruin. There may be a few good men, even in the worst places, and there certainly are, and there have been historically as well. In the last verse of this text, look at verse 23. Let me go to the end verse for just a second here. In the last verse, verse 23, look what, uh, look what the Lord says. He has this statement, middle of the verse, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause. Knowing that national sins bring on national judgment. Israel was promised when they came out of Egypt. And again, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, I've talked about it a number of times, but that's the blessings and cursings chapter. It's not the only one, but it's one of the most significant in all the Bible. Uh, given to Israel, Israel was given all those conditional promises that if they didn't turn away and didn't begin to worship the gold and silver that they would someday acquire, because the Lord said, Moses said, someday you're going to have a bunch of stuff, and when you do, you won't want God anymore. They were told, Moses told them long before he had died, he said, I guarantee it, you guys are going to get blessed you're going to go to the promised land, you're going to have a lot of stuff, and you're going to fall in love with your stuff, and you're no longer going to love the God that gave you the stuff. But he said, when that happens, great judgment will come upon you. It'll be poured out unless you heed and turn. But he knew that that, would, that indeed would happen, that they wouldn't heed and turn, that they would instead pursue idolatry. And so in this last verse, the Lord gives us this statement, I've done nothing without cause, but where's the cause? Well, the cause is found in verse 13. Go back to the beginning of the text that we've looked at. Son of man, when a land sins against me by what? Persistent unfaithfulness. We all make mistakes. The Bible talks about the New Testament, those that practice sin, does everyone understand the difference between practicing sin and falling sometimes? We all sin. I, I would suspect every single person here sinned today, at least once. Even if you didn't know it. Even if you're the holiest person in the room, you may not know it, but you probably sinned at least once today. When I was unsaved, I knew how to practice sin. You get really good at it, don't you? You are persistent. You may not work out every day, you may not eat right every day, but you knew how to sin every day. Persistence. 
persistent unfaithfulness. Once we get saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside, and we desire to be persistently faithful. We desire that. doesn't mean that we always succeed in it, but one thing we can say is we're no longer persistently unfaithful. That was easy to be in a lost condition because that's, that's what we knew. That's all we knew. In Israel at this time, particularly the land of Judah, this is, uh, you know, sometimes Ezekiel referred to Israel, sometimes he refers to Judah, sometimes he refers to Jerusalem. Uh, in, the, in this context, it's all synonymous. But the land of Judah was consistently, persistently being unfaithful. What does that mean? Well, the land preferred the idols of the heart that we looked at last week. That was the preference, the idols of the heart over a heart transformed by God because we'll never be able to be persistently faithful without God's help. Amen? You can't be persistently faithful unless you want God's help. But to have God's help, you have to ask for God's help. And he then looks at the heart. See, the Lord knows our hearts. If someone truly says, I want to start serving Jesus like I never have before, he'll honor that request. You believe that? He'll honor that request. Because he looks at what? The heart. He looks truly at where we're really at. You can't fool God. We can fool other people. But when he looks at our heart and God sees us on our knees saying, Lord, I don't want to be in bondage to this sin anymore. God will say, I'll deliver you from it. Now, it may be little by little that we looked at in Deuteronomy. It might be little by little, but we will see deliverance from it. We'll see persistent getting, in other words, the magnet attraction of sin beget, begins to get weaker and weaker and weaker in the life of a Christian. And we become persistently faithful Whereas if we practice sin, as Israel was doing, just kind of going through the motions of saying, yeah, we want to do, do what God wants us to do, but there really is not any interest in it whatsoever. And then they might would say, if you talk to them at the office, this is the religious uh, person from Jerusalem, they have a good job, they have all these idolatrous uh, things in their heart that God can see, that no one else can see. And then if somebody comes along like a Jeremiah or Ezekiel and says, you know, thus saith the Lord, hey, who are you to judge me? Nobody's perfect. That's not the answer. That those of us that desire to be persistently faithful, we say, Lord, woe is me. Help me to become more like you. But Israel... Judah in this time, they continually chose spiritual adultery. To be unfaithful means to, instead of being in love with the Lord God who had created them as a nation, had given them all the blessings of, of the promised land of Canaan, had kept them from being, they, they could already have been destroyed numerous times by Babylon, by Assyria, by other nations. The Lord had preserved them instead of being thankful and turning back to the Lord they continually chose spiritual adultery. The Bible, every time when it speaks of idolatry, it's synonymous with adultery. To be in love with someone other than the Lord. You look at this persistent unfaithfulness, you think about our own nation. Last night we had um, the State of the Union address in our own country. And 
it's, this is no specific thing with our current leadership, uh, whether it's our president last night, whether it was the president before him, the president before him. You heard me. Uh, I gave some statistics from 1961 about our seminaries. For a long time, matter of fact, um, uh, we've probably, I don't know how many presidents we've had uh, in the last 20, 30 years, but no matter who stands up, every single one of them say, the union is strong, right? Have you ever heard a president get up and say, we're in really bad shape? <laughs> Why would they say that? Because that would reflect poorly on them. You're never going to hear, well, it'd be great if we would hear, I've never heard it in my lifetime, anyone standing up and saying, we are a nation full of rebellion and sin. No. We say we're strong. We're stronger than everybody else. We're the greatest nation on earth. We haven't, we haven't you know, we've got our flaw. you know, we'll say things like that. We've got our flaws, you know, but we've, and on the whole, we're very, very strong. We're in great shape. And then, but God would look at our nation and say, so you're strong. So since, since the 70s, you've killed 57 million babies. And, and the blood doesn't cry out to the Lord? Uh, we, state after state after state, actually since 9-11, since 9-11, which was quite a wake-up call for our nation, I don't know about you, but I picked up the phone, and I've stayed on it ever since. How about you? Like, to me, that was a wake-up call from the Lord, and I, and I have not put the phone back down since that time. Now, I was already saved prior to that, but that was quite a wake-up call, and since that time, we've had state after state after state decide that God doesn't know anything about marriage. He doesn't know anything about it. Now, this is, well, we already had problems with marriage well before that because we've had no-fault divorces that started, I think, on the West Coast back in the early 70s. So we've been obliterating marriage for quite some time, which God ordained. So that's problematic. 57 million babies, that's problematic. We're $18 trillion in debt, as if that doesn't matter, right? I could go on and on and on. By the way, uh, uh, Joel Rosenberg is uh, speaking tonight for Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, at 10 o'clock Pacific time. No, 10 o'clock here, 7 o'clock Pacific time, 10 o'clock here. So uh, if you're interested, you might want to check that out. He's actually speaking on America, the Middle East, and the true state of our union. Might want to check it out. He's done a lot of good work at examining what's going on here and around the world and, and what's really taking shape from a prophetic standpoint. But as I mentioned uh, on Sunday, that study from 1961, it was in Red Book. All those future ministers from mainline denominations, and, and some of you were probably like, really? I cannot believe that, that pastor, guys training for the ministry, didn't believe in the deity of Christ. Not only didn't, but the majority of them didn't believe in the deity of Christ. The majority of them don't believe in the second coming of Christ. These were main, mainline denominational seminaries back in 61. So it's no wonder we find ourselves, if the pulpits in America going that far back and the pulpits in America weren't preaching the truth, what would we expect the people to be believing in? Israel had the same problem. Even though they had the faithful men, 
Even though they had the faithful men like a Jeremiah, even though they had some Daniels, even though they had some Ezekiels, even though they had others, as we've seen in our study through Ezekiel, they had far more of the other. They had far more hirelings. They had far more false prophets. They had far more leaders that were in it for the money, leaders that were in it for political gain, people that would say anything to preserve their own piece of the pie instead of actually saying, this is what Moses wrote. This is what Joshua said. This is what the Lord tells us. So we find ourselves as our nation, much like Israel, we have for generations now persistent unfaithfulness. Would you agree? This isn't just in the last 10 years. This isn't just in the last, you know, five years. This is, goes well beyond that, much farther back. Matter of fact, many people in our own nation, and this is true in Israel too. Remember in Israel they, how proud they were that they were the sons and daughters of Abraham? Very, they were very proud that they were Jewish. Matter of fact, Samaritans, scum of the earth, half, only half Jewish. Other nations defiled. Remember Peter, even after salvation, I can't touch that stuff, Lord. I've never touched anything unclean. Because they had been raised to believe that they were, in some ways, special and superior because God had chosen them. Now, God had chosen them, and God's chosen us, but we're not special or superior because he chose us. We're just saved by grace. Amen? We're not superior or anything. We're just sinners saved by grace. So in, in our nation today, we actually have many people that it's not that they are in love with God. They're in love with being Americans. They're not necessarily doing a whole bunch of stuff that, by, by my standard, and maybe even your standard, they're really good people. But they don't love the Lord. They might be in love with patriotism. They might be in love with American idealism. Hey, I love TV land as much as anybody. I do. But just because you watch something in black and white and say, wow, things were wholesome then, you'll go back, go look up some of the people that were the actors and actresses, and you're like, wow, they're divorced four times? But their show, they portrayed perfection. You see, the Lord looks at the heart. The cause, Israel, generation after generation, decade after decade, persistent unfaithfulness. And what does the Lord say he's going to do? To stretch out his hand. But it's not only in our nation at large. The church, the body of Christ, or, or those that would claim to be the body of Christ, uh, the bigger problem is that the church isn't the salt and light it's called to be. In a Barna study, the rise, of churchlessness, the rise of churchlessness in America, and of course going to church doesn't make you, any, doesn't make you saved any more than being in the car. Being in the garage makes you a car, but the churchlessness of America in 1990s, the churchless in America were about 30%. 30% of the country was considered churchless. In the 2000s, for the last decade, 2000 to 2010, that, uh, that rose to 33%. About 33% of our nation was considered churchless. You know what it is in 2014? 43%. Just since the 90s, it's gone from 30% churchless to 43% churchless. 
But I don't blame some people if, if the pastors in the pulpit, going back to the 60s, don't believe it. I used to think that before I got saved. I was like, why should I go to church when I see people in the church living the same way I do? You ever heard that from people? And sometimes they have a valid point to make. I can't always disagree with them, except for I tell them, hey, but those aren't the, those aren't the people that you'll stand before someday. Even here, God mentions three men, doesn't he? Even then, that argument was probably popular, wasn't it? But everyone else, the hypocrite, God says, no, everyone's not. You ever heard of Job? You ever heard of Noah? You ever heard of Daniel? We'll get to them guys in a second. So even then, God would say, even, there's still a few. You will not be able to tell me that it's impossible to live for me because there will always be a Joseph out there, won't there? There will always be a Timothy. There will always be a David. There will always be someone that is living against the current and saying, I'm not going to live this way, the rest the way everyone else is going. But the flow of the church has changed dramatically, even in our lifetime. Uh, today we have, uh, these are the breakdowns of the Barna study. Uh, those considered actively churched are 40, 49% America. 49% considered actively churched. I love their definition of actively churched, though. It tends church at least once a month. That was not the definition of active 50 years ago. That would be like saying active at the gym <laughs> once a month. That's when you trade in your keychain and stop spending 75 a month. When you're active at the gym once a month. I've been guilty of that in the past. I did trade in the keychain. Because I'd rather work out outside where there's some sunshine and it's free. Sorry if you like the gym. I, I, I have no problem with the gym. I'm just saying for me, I'd rather ride my bike. And it doesn't cost me anything to ride my bike outside. 8% are minimally, minimally church. They attend church infrequently and unpredictably. I still think once a month is infrequently unpredictable, but that's just me. It doesn't say that everyone attends only once a month, but that was the, that was the, the bar. At least once a month was considered active. The 10% purely unchurched are those who do not currently and have never attended a church. That's 10% of our nation. And then the de-churched, this is a sad group, were once active in church but no longer attend, 33%. You know many people, you'll meet people that, yeah, I got saved when I was 15. Went to church until I was about 25. How old are you now? 45 and haven't been in 20 years. I don't believe in that stuff anymore. But God wants them to come back, doesn't he? He wanted Israel to come back. Yes, the unfaithfulness was there, but the opportunity to still be redeemed was there. And that's why he continued to send the prophets. He continued to send the prophets. But there has to be a refusal or an acceptance, and they continued to refuse. Leonard Ravenhill said, I wish in America that we were as concerned about separation from church and sin as we are about separation between church and state. Church and sin is a monstrous problem. And that's true. Church and sin. If church and sin is focused on and dealt with with genuine holiness and repentance, all that church and state stuff will take care of itself, won't it? God wants to deal with the issue, the root cause. There's a cause and why judgment will come, and it's based on rebellion. 
Let's look at what's going to happen because of this. I will stretch out my hand against it and cut off the supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast, the calamities. He mentions four things here. Um, in verse 21, you see them listed out again. My four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence. Uh, the order is different in 21 than it actually is in the text, but still the same four. The first one being famine. You know, we're very fortunate in our own nation. Uh, God could send famine anytime he wants to any place on planet Earth, can he? There's nothing to prevent the Lord from sending famine. Our grocery stores are packed, but by the grace of, I mean with food. Sometimes they're packed with people too. Certain nights at Walmart are fun to go down the aisle here. I, you know, I've learned, by the way, the Walmart near our house, if you really want to go and not have to battle 8 million carts per aisle, I know that's an exaggeration, but you get the idea. First thing Saturday morning, anytime before 8.30 a.m., there's no one in there. It's like me and 10 other people. It's great. But the groceries, the aisles are packed with food. Why? Because you know, sometimes we've been called the breadbasket of the world, haven't we? Israel was blessed with a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. When they got there, it was lush. It was beautiful. Those of you who have been to Israel, uh, you've seen that the land has made an incredible comeback by, by the grace of God, even though there's a lot of Israeli ingenuity and all of that stuff that goes into what they've done with irrigation and land reclamation and all of those things. It's really just God's favor. Amen? And in our own nation, we have the favor of God. It blows me away sometimes. I, I, I guess I think of things that other people don't think of sometimes. You know, I'm, you know I'll go into a place like, um, what is it, Chipotle, and I'll see like, it looks like 80, 80 chickens on a grill. And that's just a fraction of how many chickens are on all the Chipotle grills all across the country, not including all the chickens that Chick-fil-A is selling that same day, and Kentucky Fried Chicken, and that's just chicken. Right? God has blessed our nation tremendously, hasn't he? But any time he would, what did, what did Matthew Henry say? That God has, it, has, has at his disposal a number of judgments which he can release at any time. If he caused it not to rain from coast to coast, we'd be in serious trouble, wouldn't we? There's a lot of enemies around the world that could sell, sell us food, but they might say this is our opportunity to gouge America like they've never been gouged before. Some countries say, sure, we'll sell you wheat for 5x the price of oil. We love you that much. Right? Uh, Natural World News. This was just in, uh, last week's, in the article last week. It says, California, where residents are currently experiencing a three-year drought that is the worst the region has seen in more than a millennium. Not 10 years, not 100 years. California is in the worst drought in a millennium. And according to a NASA study, if California is ever to recover from a lack of rain, it's going to have to gain 11 trillion gallons of water back somehow. 11 trillion gallons. Not as much as our national debt, but it's still a lot. Sufficient enough to support the water needs of the state and extensive agriculture. Uh, 
article goes on to say it takes years to get into a drought of this severity, and it will likely take many more to crawl out of it. Jay Famgaletti of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory said in a news release, in the same article, now that's California, in the same article it said, but Iran, country halfway around the world, Iran, obviously in the news a lot these days, with its iconic Great Lake-sized bodies of water, now holding a mere 5% of the water it held several years ago. I know that we don't think much about the other things going on in Iran. Everyone's focused on the nuclear stuff and even uh, um, the, the negotiations that are taking place and all of those things. But Iran's lakes have lost 95% of their water. God can do anything to any nation at any time. He can withhold the water. He can withhold the rain. The long-term ramifications for Iran are significant. And the short-term ramifications are significant, not just the long-term. Uh, could we see in our lifetime nations go to war over water? We think about oil, black gold, Texas tea. But water, there's, a, there was, uh, there's been a couple of front-page articles on some of the time and some of these other ones about the precious resource of water, even though we have desalination parts of the world. These things we talked about in the prophecy series that I did, uh, the, the battle over the Nile that's brewing with e Egypt and Ethiopia, the headwaters specifically and damming it up. But famine, how will Israel recover in that, in that time? If the food supply is gone and God just sends famine, the nations don't have to starve you out. God does it. Just by stopping up the heavens from rain, stopping the, the rains from falling and replenishing the crops. He says, let's take a quick little uh, look here. Uh, he says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they deliver only themselves. This is mentioned a couple times in the text. These three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job. What do we know about these three men? It's interesting that these three men are mentioned. One of them's currently alive when Ezekiel writes this. Daniel. Part of Ezekiel might say, hey, look, what gives, Lord, what about me? You mentioned Daniel. I wonder why he mentions Daniel instead of, well, first of all, it's not usually good to write about yourself, right? Even if these three men were alive, myself, of course, <laughs> Job, you guys heard of him, and, and Noah. So I guess God didn't allow Ezekiel to write about himself, because Ezekiel certainly would fit right there with Daniel, wouldn't you think? But he doesn't say himself. But his contemporary, his peer at the time, was Daniel. Kind of like Peter and John. But God would probably not let Peter write Peter. He could write about John. But Noah and Job, well, Noah... He really did become, for all intents and purposes, the only man standing. God actually did allow his sons and daughters to be saved. But the Lord says, with Israel's condition, God is so incensed by their persistent rejection, even though they were God's chosen people, that in this particular case, Noah wouldn't even have saved his family, just himself. Not because of his own righteousness, just because Noah had humbled himself before the Lord. Job is an interesting uh, mention as well, because Job, we don't know enough about where Job came from, 
what happened to the country around him. But we do know that Satan took a very personal interest in Job, didn't he? That Job was that much of a light and a witness that Satan went to God about him one-on-one and says, I want a piece of him. That guy, and maybe Job was the only thing preventing his land from being destroyed at that time. We don't know. We know that Job was living righteous. Daniel, of course, would go on to write, uh, of course, Daniel would write things that would be relevant for our lifetime and things that were relevant to the cross and the the cutting off of Messiah and even the the seven-year tribulation and all of these things. And uh, even the angelic host was prevented, or the angel was prevented from getting to Daniel when he's praying. So there was a battle, uh, even with Michael, the archangel, heavenly battles over Daniel's prayer life and the things that he was reading and studying. So these three men, the Lord says, no matter what, even if Daniel was still back in Jerusalem. So Daniel at this time, as I mentioned already, he's in Babylon now. But the Lord says, even if Daniel was back in Jerusalem, he would be spared, but Jerusalem would not be spared. And it goes to show that when judgment is finally going to come, God still will have some that he'll protect. But the national sins still must be paid for. Does that make sense? Personal sins are paid for on the cross. National sins will be paid for. Every nation that thumbs its nose at God long enough will eventually have to pay the bill. And Israel was not going to escape this. These three men, God says, if they were there, yes, they would survive, but their children wouldn't, their families wouldn't, no one else would. And it's the weight of God's heavy hand upon a people that have resisted and been stiff-necked for so long and been given so many chances to repent. Think about our own country. Every, every day of the week, I mean... Tonight is a Wednesday. Lots of churches are available with doors open. There's seats available here in lots of other churches, but most people are not interested, right? They've got better things to do. For all I know, American Idol starts tonight. I don't know. Maybe it does. I don't know. I know I've seen commercials on Fox when I was watching the football game. It's coming up or something. But some people, they're not going to miss that if it's the only thing they do this week. And God says, that's so unimportant. Matter of fact, worse than unimportant, people are sometimes mired in these things. He goes on to say some of the other, the other forms of judgment that he can bring. Wild beast. Now that one, we would say, wild beast, good thing we don't have to worry about that one in our lifetime. Or do we? Or could we? Could, turn with me real quick to Genesis. So just so you know that this, this is not something that is exclusive to ancient times, this could actually be, matter of fact, we'll show you from the book of Revelation, it will be unleashed again in modern times. Genesis chapter 9, verse 2. Right after the Lord says in verse 1, be fruitful, multiply the earth, Genesis 9, verse 2, and this is what God says to Noah. Interestingly, Noah is involved here as well. He's mentioned in our text. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth 
and of every bird of the air and all that moves on the earth. You ever seen the movie The Birds? Long time ago, Alfred Hitchcock movie. Aren't you glad that God's put the fear of man in birds? I go for my walk or my bike, and I go, and I, there'll be birds, and they just flutter off if I get within 100 feet of them. I'm like, I'm nowhere near you. I'm not going to bother you. I actually like looking at you in the trees, but they think I mean them harm. But God put the dread of us in all the animals. But it always won't be like that. In Revelation chapter 6, we see the same four judgments. Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. Same four that are mentioned here in the book of Ezekiel chapter 14. Now these are, um, these are when the fourth seal in the book of Revelation, this is in the tribulation period. And middle of the verse, verse 8, Revelation 6, verse 8. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, also found in Ezekiel 14. Hunger, that's famine. Death, which can be on any number of things, but pestilence included. And the beast of the earth. The beast of the earth. What would it be like if, um, we know what it would be like if God stopped rain. What would it be like if God took away from animals their fear of man? You wouldn't want a squirrel jumping on you. <laughs> much less a raccoon. You ever seen the movie Elf when the raccoon attacks, you know, uh, uh, 2013 in Alaska, wolves attacked and killed a woman in Alaska. Uh, last week in Wichita Falls, a camel stomped to death the two owners. Did you see that on the news? Camel just went berserk. A camel stomped to death the owners. Since, t since the year 2000, we've had three fatal attacks by, in, the, in the North America with mountain lions and cougars. A number of them were near fatal, but people were rescued just in time or someone uh, got away. Many, many other related animals, not to mention we've had domestic dogs kill children and all kinds of things. I mean, the list goes on and on, and we don't even know what it's like to live in other countries. Take India, for example. Uh, just since 2011, they've had 274 people killed by tigers. 274 people killed by tigers. Far more by cobras. Snake bites. Nobody likes getting bit by a cobra or a rattlesnake or any other kind of beast of the earth. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Wall Street Journal article today, 30.5% jump in big cat head count. Uh, tigers are now, the tigers specifically, up to 2,226 tigers, they believe, are now in India. So the numbers of tigers are rising. What if God ever said, you don't want my protection anymore? The animals aren't afraid of you anymore. Well, I got a gun. One gun against every animal going berserk weird place to be, but it could happen. In the book of Revelation, uh, it tells that the beasts of the earth are going to turn, along with other number of things, turn on people. He says in verse 17, or if I bring a sword on that land, of course the sword is going to come. The sword's going to come from Babylon. The sword will come from Babylon. In America, we've got a lot of enemies that could turn the sword on us, don't we? Russia's building their armed forces. China's building their armed forces. ISIS building their armed forces. 
countries in Africa with Boko Haram. I mean, around the world, there's a lot of people that would say, given the chance, we'd love to pull the trigger on America. The only thing that protects us is not our great military, it's the grace of God. Even though I'm thankful of our military and those that you serve in it, it's still the Lord. Pestilence can mean, pestilence can mean many things. The Lord sends pestilence into the land. Uh, we've got cancer, we've got heart disease, we've got AIDS, we've got Ebola, all of these things, pestilence. Uh, any of them could become even more epidemic than they are. I think it was Dr. Tony Evans I was listening to recently. Y'all ever listened to Urban Alternative on the radio? He's talked about right now, and he's one of many that said this. He goes, I believe America's already under the passive judgment of God. I know that seems like incongruent thing, passive judgment, but there is already. I know Ken Ham and others have said it as well. I believe we are under a form of judgment. It's not the full-scale judgment, but what did Matthew Henry say? It comes in what? Phases. Phases. But there's some really good news here as well. If you're taking notes, last thing we'll look at the comfort. There is some good news here. The Lord says, yet behold, there shall be left in it. So judgment's going to come. He says, no matter what, the idolatry and the uh, adulterous living of Judah, I'm going to judge the land. The national sins will be judged. There will be a bill to pay. But God says, there'll be a remnant. Both sons and daughters, they will surely come out to you. Some of those, that remnant would actually be carried into exile and would live for the Lord in exile. Some of the remnant would actually stay in Jerusalem and would actually, some of them, live to be there when Nehemiah would come to rebuild. So a remnant would still be there. Aren't you glad that God always does that work of a remnant? A remnant. No one deserves to be part of the remnant, but it sure is a blessing to be the remnant and be part of that remnant. I mentioned Iran. I want to come back to Iran for a second. At the same time, Iran is under just as much judgment as America when their lakes are drying up. There's a lot of issues in all the nations of the world. And God's going to judge all the nations. When he says all the nations, he means all the nations. That means Israel, that means America, Britain, every country in Africa, every country in Asia, Australia, the whole world. But Take Iran, for example, as I mentioned. They're under drought conditions. Can, can God lift the drought? Of course he could. But he hasn't. But in the middle of Iran, God may be trying to get Iran's attention. Maybe even he's speaking to their ayatollah and saying, turn to me and I'll turn the rain on. Wouldn't that be great? Pray for our world leaders. Don't just say, well, I hope, I hope God offs them. Because they could be used for many to come to the Lord. But what's happened in Iran, this was an article back in September 2014 from Breaking, News, Breaking Christian News, actually widely, widely reported in, in many different, you can look it up yourself, many different uh, publications and, and online um, websites. It says this, it's speaking of a new biblical translation for the Iranian people, uh, um, for their language, Farsi and, and some other um, I don't know if there were some other dialects, but this is what it says. It says, a major new translation of the Bible into modern Persian. Launched in London on Monday, this is back in September, 
marks a remarkable transformation for the church in Iran. According to a news release from Elam Ministries, the organization behind the translation, at the time of the Islamic Revolution in 1979, there were no more than 500 Christians from a Muslim background in that country. No more than 500 in 1979 at the time of the revolution there. Now Iran is thought to have the fastest growing church in the world. A very conservative estimate puts the number of Christians in Iran at 100,000, said David Yigen Nazar of Elam Ministry, speaking in the news release. He continued, the generally accepted estimate is 370,000. That's the generally accepted estimate, 370,000. Some believe there are as many as 700,000, and some believe there are already 1 million born-again Christians in Iran since 79. It's hard to tell because so much of the church is underground. As you know, Pastor Said is there. What a praise that uh, his wife, Nagma, met today with President Obama. We don't, we don't know what the result of that meeting is yet, but praise the Lord that they met. And so Iran, goes on, the article goes on to say, Operation World puts the annual growth rate in Iran of 19.7%. If that's the case, Iran will soon have the 1 million Christian believers, some believe they already do, 19.7 rate of annual growth in believers. Boy, wouldn't you love to see 19.7% of Chesterfield Canyon come to Christ every year? So in Iran, which is under this judgment, their waters are drying up, but living waters are flowing to new people. Isn't that fascinating that a remnant is being raised up in the midst, God's comforting some while judgment will come. And eventually, Iran's going to be judged seriously. We get to later in Ezekiel, we get to Magog and Gog and all the, the confederation. There's going to be some serious, even far worse judgment that's happening right now. But the remnant will be spared. And even if they're not spared physically, they'll be spared where? In heaven. And they're not being spared physically now. Many of them are being pers persecuted, tortured, and even killed. Iran has, just so you know, Iran has 77.54 million people. It's a huge country. Even on the world stage, it's, it's quite large. 77.5 million people, or 4.5. If there's 100,000 Christians, let me give you some percentages. If there's 100,000 Christians, that means that there's 0.00129% Christians, if there's only 100,000. That's a little more than one-tenth of 1%. A little more than one-tenth of one percent. Do you see how big the harvest field really is there? If it's a million, as some think it is, 1.29% Christian. 1.29% if there's a million. Now that's a remnant to be sure, but don't forget that's a lot more than 500 in 1979, isn't it? The rapture, and another, I'm a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, as most Calvary Chapel pastors are. If you hear the prophecy series, I went through why, that is, uh, why that's my belief in the scriptures. But I tell you what, the rapture would be a real blessing to those in Iran, won't it? And oddly enough, it could be a real relief to those that are running the country. Isn't that interesting? Could be a, it would definitely be a blessing to the Iranian Christians, but it could be a real relief to those that are fighting against them to say, at least we don't have to deal with them anymore, and we can move forward 
without these Christians messing up the plans. But a remnant. Close with a passage from Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll come to a close right here. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. You know, to Ezekiel, God is saying, and they will comfort, in verse 23, he said, and they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. Every man of God wants to see a remnant preserved by the Lord. And not only the remnant preserved, but to grow. Pray for Iran. Pray that those 100,000 or 307,000 or 700,000 or 1 million, we don't know the exact number, pray that God takes that remnant. If it's only 1.29%, even at a million, it would still be a remnant at 10 million, wouldn't it? Or 7 million would be 10%. I don't know about you, but I want a bigger remnant. Amen? And that was Ezekiel's heart. He didn't want to see anyone in Jerusalem suffer the judgment to come. When we speak about judgment, it's not because we, we can't wait till America gets what's coming. And I've heard Christians get that attitude. Haven't you? I've heard a lot of Christians say, I can't wait till God pours it out on us. What are you talking about? That may come, but pray that God raises up a remnant and he comforts us. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 3. Comfort, yes, comfort my people says your God, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yes, judgment came, but God says, I'll still preserve a remnant to comfort. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And of course, we know that John the Baptist would end up fulfilling that as well. But here's the thing. Judgment is coming if there's not repentance for Israel. That's what the Lord's telling Ezekiel. Judgment's coming for America if there's not repentance. But what should we be doing? Well, we should be a faithful remnant, praying for the faithful remnant, that the faithful remnant would become a larger remnant. And quite possibly that the remnant could actually see a revival and a great awakening. That's my heart. I hope it's yours as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this evening in your word. We thank you again for your love and your mercy evident, Lord, at all times. Lord, you're so patient, not willing that any should perish. Individually, even nations, Lord, willing that, uh, that our nation and other nations would turn back to you. But Lord, we do pray as we come to a close here this evening. We pray for our own country. Just last night, our State of the Union address, um, Lord, we pray that uh, you would open up the eyes and the ears of our neighbors and our co-workers and those that are around us, Lord, that they would see that it's only by your grace that our grocery stores are filled with food. It's only by your grace, Lord, that, that we haven't endured uh, more 9-11 type attacks. It's only by your grace, Lord, that we continue to prosper and uh, be so fruitful in so many ways. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would just stir the hearts of your church, your remnant, that we would have many faithful witnesses, many Noahs, many Jobs, many Daniels, many Ezekiels, that we in this room would be those that would speak truth, but Lord, that we would be those that would also comfort those that are hurting. And we ask these things in your name, we pray, amen. You are dismissed. Friday night.
Look for an email tomorrow or take a picture of the address with your smartphone on the way out. It's on the table out there. If you didn't sign up and you still want to, please do so.